Let's pray. Our Father in heaven, we ask that you would open our ears as our pastor comes to bring the word before us. We ask that we would hear you, not his voice, but your voice, that he would speak boldly and clearly, that you would be with him. Our spirit, would you come and turn our hearts and open our minds to the things that we are about to hear about our Savior. We pray that this would be an encouragement to us and a reminder. And for those who are here who do not believe, we ask that this would be a time of salvation. We ask these things in your name. Amen. You turn with me once again to Mark's Gospel. We're we're still here in chapter 1 and and looking once again at various aspects and implications of the temptation of our Lord Jesus Christ. Uh, This is the the third week now we've been on this, this same text, verses 12 through 13, and we looked at first... What were the theological implications? What was the theological significance of this temptation of our Lord Jesus Christ? And I said at that point that this was not merely an example for us to follow. But I was careful with the way I worded that. You hear the qualifier there. It's not merely that. Because we're going to see today, there is an element that we need to look to, the example of our Lord Jesus Christ. And then last week... We, we began what, what started to be one sermon, and, and in my judgment, decided it was too much to cover in, in one, too much of a meal to eat in one sitting. So I divided that up. So what you're going to hear today is really the third point from last week's sermon. But here's the premise that we've been working with for now three, three sermons in a row, this one premise, and it's this, temptation is universal. And I didn't have to convince you of that, I just had to state that correct? We often fail when we face temptation. I don't have to convince you of that either, do I? And we also know that that failure, when we face temptation and when we fail, when we succumb to that temptation, that then becomes a source of great discouragement to us, maybe even doubts to us, or anxiety and fear. That's the universal reality, even for a mature Christian. And we, we know that because the Apostle Paul articulated that very thing. We Go and read Romans 7, and you can see how Paul wrestles with these things within his own soul. This is the things that I want to do, I don't do. Things that I know that I'm not supposed to do, that's what I find myself doing. And Paul's conclusion was, he just cries out, O wretched man that I am, who will deliver me from this body of death? He doesn't say what, he says, who will deliver me? And that really needs to be our focus. And bear that in mind today, because here's the danger. And I'm a little nervous going into this sermon from the get-go. And I just want to, cards on the table. I'm a little nervous here, because this sermon has the potential to be nothing but law. And if you don't understand this sermon as a continuation of what we've heard the last two weeks, you will hear this as law. You will hear this as moralism. You will hear this as, try harder, do better. And that's not the message. But it is an application. The law is good. 
The law is holy, the law is right, and we are obligated as Christians to obey the commands of Christ because of what he has done. So the danger here is we will seek to obey and forget what he has done. So, full disclosure, right? Just prepare yourself going in not to hear only law. The the focus today is on the duties. What are the duties of a Christian with respect to temptation. So there are, you know, we, we don't we preach a, we preach free grace in Christ, but that does not mean there are no responsibilities for the Christian. Amen. There are duties, there are obligations, there is an obedience that's required of us. So that's the that's the the thrust of the sermon today. But that duty, obligation, and obedience rests upon the finished work of Christ. Now, just briefly. Last week, we looked at a definition of temptation. We had to define it, first of all, because we're not talking about the kinds of, of, of trials, the kinds of refinements that the Lord does through us through ordinary circumstances and even extraordinary circumstances. We're talking about the temptation to sin, or the old Webster's that I gave to you last week, the enticement to evil by arguments, by flattery, or by the offer of some real or apparent good. So that's our working definition. And then the thrust of last week's sermon was to distinguish, to distinguish the kinds of temptation, and we distinguish it two ways, internal and external. And what we concluded from the scriptures is that our Lord Jesus was tempted in every way in which we are without sin, meaning not only that it was the outcome of his temptation not sinful, but even his his condition in the, the temptation was not sin. He does not have our sinful nature. He did not inherit original sin from Adam. So our Lord Jesus was tempted externally in every way that we are. He was hungry. He was thirsty. He experienced the betrayal. He, all the kinds of things that we might experience in this life, our Lord experienced. But what he did not experience that you and I contend with is that inward allure, that inward enticement to sin. Because here's what happens, if we're honest. Temptation comes, and we want it. Not every time, but there are times when a temptation comes, and we say, this is hard for me to say no, because I want it. That was never the case with our Lord Jesus. Never once did he have a sinful desire inwardly meeting with and shaking hands with, so to speak, that external temptation. Well, the third D in our alliteration last week was duty. Duty. That's the subject today. What is our duty as Christians? And I'm speaking primarily to Christians in this sermon. If you are in Christ, you have been set free. Not set free to do whatever you wish, but set free to obey Christ in ways that you did not have the capacity to do before. Now, I don't ordinarily use alliteration. When I've tried it in the past, it seems it's come across as, at least for me, forced. But two weeks in a row now, it's just kind of fallen off the page to me. So you have alliteration once again. I'm going to read the passage, but here's what we're going to think about in terms of our duty to tempt, with respect to temptation under three headings, prevention, preparation, and perseverance. Prevention, preparation, and perseverance. Now, 
two exhortations before I read the text and we dive in. Or two, I guess I should say two additional exhortations. Number one is this is not intended to be exhaustive. If we were going to try to, there are good Puritan works on the this, this subject. I would recommend Indwelling Sin by John Owen uh, or Thomas Boston's work on repentance are outstanding. This is a primer. This, this is an appetizer. It's also, my intention is not to only to instruct you, to, but to provoke you. Not in a bad way, but to provoke you to think about these things, to study them further, to consider yourself in light of these things. So that's, that's one exhortation. The second one is, my focus today with respect to duties is, is more individualized. What is your duty with respect to your own temptation? But we also have duties with respect to, to the temptations of others, don't we? If you are a friend, a coworker, a neighbor, a parent, a husband, a wife, a son or daughter, then you know that you have some responsibility for the temptations of others around you, right? And as the Puritans would say, according to your places and stations or your places and callings, you may have more or less responsibility. If you are a parent, you have a responsibility not only to provoke your children, not to provoke your children or lead them into temptation, but you have a duty to help them themselves avoid certain temptations. So, as I work through this, I want you to think in those terms, not only about yourself, that's really going to be the focus of my words, but you're reasonable people, and I trust you to apply this more broadly, right? Does that make sense? So here we go. Mark chapter 1, let's read together again, verses 12 and 13. The Spirit immediately, this is after his baptism, the Spirit immediately drove him out into the wilderness, and he was in the wilderness 40 days being tempted by Satan, and he was with the wild animals, and the angels were ministering to him. So here, in his physical weakness, our Lord faced temptation. What do we learn about his temptation from these passages that we then ought to apply to ourselves with respect to duties? And the first one is prevention. And the first one is prevention. Uh, we, we see here in, this, in the sovereign wisdom of God, the Spirit of God led Jesus, or some translations say drove him into the wilderness so that he could be tempted, so that he could fulfill what Adam failed to do, what Israel failed to do. But in that, the Spirit had been preparing our Lord Jesus be, according to his humanity long before this moment. And we can draw out from his other instructions and from apostolic instruction what kind of preparation ought we to make? We, we recognize, as Christians, because we, we have certain duties, and the first one, if we're thinking about temptation, we can think about how to, how to endure it, we're going to get there, or how to prepare for it, but isn't the wisest course, according to the Scriptures and according to just plain old common sense, if you can, if you can prevent it, isn't that best? If you can avoid the possibility of facing a temptation, isn't that better than trying to muster up the strength to work through it? So the very first duty, when we think about prevention, the first aspect 
of prevention comes from our Lord Jesus. We, we, we pray this weekly as we recite together the Lord's Prayer. Jesus taught his disciples to pray. Lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. So the very first duty that we have with respect to preventing temptation is prayer and being watchful. In our catechism, it asks, what do we pray for in this sixth petition? In the, in the petition that says, lead us not into temptation. And the answer is in the sixth petition, which is, and lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from sin. We pray that God would either keep us from being tempted to sin or support and deliver us when we are tempted to sin. Jesus would go on in his, with his disciples to apply this and apply this with an urgency as they're gathered in the Garden of Gethsemane on the very night of his betrayal. They had shared a supper together, and then he went out with them to pray, and he tells them, watch and pray that you may not enter into temptation. The spirit indeed is willing, but the flesh is weak. This is in Mark chapter 14. And, you know, and it just it strikes me, the human authors were just that. They were human. The, the, the spirit works through them, breathes out his word through human authors. But as Peter likely narrates this account to Mark, what was it like, that kind of pain in the, in the side, when Peter narrates to Mark? You know, he told us. He told us to watch and pray. It wasn't an hour before I sat around the table with all my brothers and said, I will not betray you. And Jesus told me that Satan has asked to sift you. But I've prayed for you. And Peter recounting that, I said, I didn't listen. And I learned an excruciating lesson that night. I didn't pray. I didn't keep watch. I overestimated myself. In Galatians 6, the Apostle Paul would give the same kind of warning. It's verse, verse 1, Brothers, if anyone is caught in any transgression, you who are spiritual should restore him in a spirit of gentleness. Keep watch on yourself, lest you also be tempted. See, there's a command, saints. This, this is an unavoidable command that Christ has given to us to pray and to keep watch. Temptation is everywhere. And the second duty with respect to how do we prevent temptation is the diligent use of the appointed means of grace. The diligent use of the appointed means of grace. We see in Acts chapter 2, I mean, just... just in the same chapter where, where Pentecost is recorded for us and, and the, the, the wonderful outpouring of the Spirit of God and thousands of souls being added. And, and Luke summarizes that early life in the church with this statement. They devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching and the breaking of bread and the prayers and the fellowship. They devoted themselves to these things. They immersed themselves in them. And, and Luke goes on to say, and the Lord brought awe upon all of the people, and he prospered them, and they multiplied. Now, our confession of faith looks at the flip side of this. and says, what happens if we neglect this? What happens if we neglect these means? So it's kind of stating it negatively. In, our, in the chapter on perseverance, one of my favorite chapters, by the way, in our confession, chapter 17, some wonderful words of encouragement, both to my own soul and to those, you know, loved ones that I've had, dear brothers and sisters, 
who've stumbled in their faith. And we find these words in paragraph 3, and though they, and, and it's speaking about true saints in Christ, those who've been called and regenerated and justified and adopted, those true saints in Christ may, through the temptation of Satan and the world, the prevalency of corruption remaining in them, and the neglect of means of their preservation, fall into grievous sins, and for a time continue therein, whereby they incur God's displeasure and grieve His Holy Spirit, come to have their graces and comforts impaired, have their hearts hardened and their consciences wounded. They hurt and scandalize others and bring temporal judgments upon themselves, yet shall they renew their repentance and be preserved through faith in Jesus Christ to the end. So the scriptures give to us affirmatively, here's what we ought to devote ourselves to. The apostles' teaching, the breaking of bread, the prayers, the fellowship. Negatively, what happens if we neglect those means? We may find ourselves hardened, our consciences seared, and falling into grievous temptations. So we prevent we prevent temptation by gathering regularly, by gathering every Lord's day under the means of grace, hearing the word of God, having our, our hearts, our consciences, our minds reminded of the gospel of Jesus Christ, being able to encourage one another in these things. And all the more, the writer of Hebrews says, as we see the day approaching, are we exhorting one another? How often have, have you been beaten up, buffeted throughout the, throughout the week, tempted in all manner of things, and be able to come and worship our triune God and then break bread with your brothers and sisters and be encouraged? It's almost like the, the, the smelling salts the boxer gets in the corner between the rounds. Okay, now get, keep your right up this time and go back in there. Thirdly, with respect to the prevention, the prevention of temptation is to avoid it and flee from it. We find this throughout the scriptures, a command to avoid, to flee. For example, in Proverbs 5, here's the father speaking to a son, and he's giving the particular temptation of an adulterous woman. And he says, And now, O sons, listen to me. Do not depart from the words of my mouth. Keep your way far from her, and do not go near the door of her house. Son, find another way home. Go nine blocks out of your way. If that's what it takes, don't go near there. It's a snare. It's a trap. Your whole reputation will be ruined. Don't even go there. Avoid it. Later in Proverbs, in Proverbs 22, the prudent sees danger and hides himself, but the simple go on and suffer for it. The naive, the one who, who foolishly says, I can handle it. No, it's just the wise, the prudent, sees the danger and hides himself. He avoids it altogether. So the third duty with respect to preventing temptation is, is avoid it, flee from it. And fourthly, and again, this is not exhaustive. I'm putting these things before you so that I can provoke your mind to think further about the Scriptures and think of other ways in your own circumstance how else might you prevent temptation from the, from the beginning? Here's a fourth duty. We've talked about the use of, of appointed means of grace, but there also is a necessity of natural means 
of natural means. There are supernatural means that God has given to us. The preaching of the word, the administration of the sacraments and prayer. Also, ordinary natural means to prevent known temptations. We may do all we can, and yet temptations can still come. And so we we find here, for example, in 1 Corinthians 7, Paul is giving instructions. The church in Corinth, a culture that was sexually depraved to such a degree that to, to Corinthianize had become a verb by this point in history. To Corinthianize meant to participate in all manner of debauchery and immorality. And so it's not unreasonable that the people in Corinth who had come to faith in Christ would think like this, well, because of what I used to do with ritual prostitution and sexual immorality down at the temple, and now that I am in Christ, and I'm a married man or I'm a married woman, maybe, maybe the answer is abstinence in my own marriage as a more righteous and holy pursuit. Maybe that's a more God-honoring thing to do. And, And I think they were probably surprised by Paul's answer. He says, no, that's not the answer. In fact, he says, because of your natural, inborn, fallen condition in which you are predisposed to sexual immorality, each man ought to have his own wife and each wife ought to have her own husband and do not deprive one another, except for a short time for fasting and prayer and then come together again soon. See, there's a, this is one example of a natural, ordinary means. It's not a silver bullet. It doesn't eliminate the indwelling desire for sin, does it? But it's a natural means that God has given to prevent uncleanness. That's just one example. But work that self out, work those things out for yourself in other circumstances. What are ordinary natural means that God has given to you? Are, are you do you get particularly anxious and fearful when you haven't eaten? Or, or do you get kind of the, the that, that hangry thing going? You're irritable and more likely to be tempted to sinful anger because you You haven't taken care of yourself physically. So again, work these things out in your own mind, but know there are sometimes not only supernatural means, but there's good old plain old common sense natural means that we must employ in order to prevent temptation. But having done that, we may do all we can. We may pray. We may seek to flee. We may seek to to be prudent and acknowledge a harm and hide ourselves. We may seek to employ the natural means, and yet temptation still comes. Our Lord Jesus Christ said, Woe to the world for temptation to sin, for it's necessary that temptations come. But woe to the one by whom the temptation comes. Our Lord says, this is the universal reality. Our Lord didn't give us an unrealistic view of the world or an unrealistic view of what it meant to be his disciple. Just because you've been born again and indwelt by the Spirit, Jesus and the apostles nowhere tell you that temptation to sin will go away. In fact, you've probably already learned, if you've been a Christian very long, you discover that sometimes temptations increase over time not decrease. And the reality is we can't prevent, we have a duty to try, we have a a duty to prevent everything we can, but the reality is we can't prevent everything, can we? 
temptation is so endemic to our human circumstance. We can't prevent it all. Our Lord Jesus taught that these temptations, these stumbling blocks, are inherent to the world in which we live. So then, the, the question is, well, how do we prepare then for the temptations that we're unable to avoid? How do we prepare to face those temptations that we are unable to escape or prevent or flee from? That brings us to the second heading. We have to prepare. We have to train and discipline ourselves so that we are prepared when temptation comes. Not if. We're able to prevent some. We're able to avoid others. We're able to flee and outrun another set. But some are going to catch us, aren't they? And when that happens, how do we prepare for that? Well, the first, the first preparation is dependence upon the Word of God and the Spirit of God. Dependence upon the Word of God and the Spirit of God. The psalmist in Psalm 119 asks this very question. He phrases it a little differently, but I think you'll hear it. It's exactly the same question that we're asking. How can a young man, or an old man, or a young man, or an old woman, or a young woman, how can a young man keep his way pure? And the answer by guarding it according to your word, with my whole heart I seek you. Let me not wander from your commandments. I have stored up your word in my heart that I might not sin against you. Blessed are you, O Lord. Teach me your statutes. With my lips I declare all the rules of your mouth. In the way of your testimonies I delight as much as in all riches. I will meditate on your precepts and fix my eyes on your ways. I will delight in your statutes. I will not forget your word. So how does a young man or any man or any woman guard and keep his way pure? By guarding according to the word. That's the first answer. We get that immediately, directly from the scriptures. Are we dependent upon the word of God? As we look back uh, in in Mark's example, or Mark's um, telling of the temptation of our Lord Jesus, he doesn't give it us as much detail, but if we go to Matthew's account and Luke's account, At each point, Jesus is tempted. What does he do? He speaks the word of God to Satan. He rebukes Satan according to the word of God. I'm not telling you to go out and and rebuke Satan and rebuke demons, but here is the same pattern, isn't it? We have a sure foundation. We have a fixed, immovable point of reference, the word of God. We need to know it. We need to memorize it. We need to study it. We need to internalize it. Maybe you think, well, I don't memorize things well word for word. You can still internalize a passage and know the meaning of it solidly. Even if you couldn't or you stumble over a particular word in your recitation of it. But prepare. Prepare with a dependence upon the word of God. Secondly, so we need to know, know scripture. There's something else you need to know with respect to temptation to prepare. You need to know you. And that sounds easy enough, doesn't it? But it isn't as easy as you think. We have, a, we have an amazing capacity to deceive ourselves, don't we? We have an amazing capacity to overestimate our abilities and underestimate a threat. In 1 Corinthians 10, 12, Paul says, Therefore, let anyone who thinks he stands take heed lest he fall. And you know the very next thing he talks about? doesn't even take a breath, and he goes right into temptation. No temptation has overtaken you. And we'll look at that first here in a minute. But Paul makes a connection between temptation and overestimating yourself. No temptation has overtaken you. But he says, therefore, if you think you stand, take heed lest you fall. James says the Lord gives grace to the humble, but he, exalt, or he, he, he 
represses or he puts down the proud. True knowledge of self has to be based on the Scripture. That has to be our measuring stick, if you will. Because our, our culture, our world will conspire with our own flesh and saying, you're really good. In fact, maybe you're not really good, but you're way better than this guy. And see, we will begin to use that as our yardstick, as our measuring stick, as we look around. So I'm more mature than her, or I'm more mature than him. Yeah, I had a, I was putting up some, like a tinted window film this last week, and it had, on the back side of it, it had one-inch grid lines. So presumably you could just count out the grids, one-inch squares, and cut it and Go on. Well, thankfully, I was taught to measure twice, right, before you cut. And I'm scratching my head. What, what's I, mean, I'm, I counted out 48 squares. I should be 48 inches wide. And I was a full inch short. You know why? The Chinese grid lines were at .98, according to my calipers. Not one inch. Doesn't sound like a lot. Only two one-hundredths of an inch. I mean, come on. But times 48 inches, it's almost a full inch off. You see, we can be like that. And Satan loves for us to be just a little bit off. It doesn't have to be much, just a little bit off on our estimation of ourselves. We have to come back to the Word of God. This is my measuring stick. I have to have a biblical anthropology. I have to understand myself well. We talked uh, last week about the necessity of having a good Christology, a good understanding of the nature of Christ. Scriptures also tell us we need to understand man from the Scriptures. See, our culture wants to reason from their own experience or their own, their own self-identification rather than the objective, immovable standard of God's Word. So, do you know where you are most likely to be tempted? Do you know yourself? And again, think about this beyond just yourself, according to your places and calling, Who's in your care, in the workplace, in your home, in other spheres? Where are those around you likely to be tempted? Are you sensitive to those things? There's a, there's a tremendous illustration. It's a golden illustration from the pages of Scripture. You don't have to turn there, but in Nehemiah, Nehemiah, is, of course, is sent to rebuild the walls of Jerusalem. And all hell breaks loose against this effort to rebuild Jerusalem. And in chapter 4, we have this testimony from Nehemiah. And, and see here, we're talking about an actual, literal, historical event, but the spiritual significance is profound, I think. So we built the wall, and the wall was joined together to half its height. For the people had a mind to work. But then Sanballat and Tobiah and the Arabs and the Ammonites and the Ashdodites heard that the repairing of the walls of Jerusalem was going forward and that the breaches were beginning to be closed and they were very angry. And they all plotted together to come and fight against Jerusalem and to cause confusion in it, and we prayed to our God. You heard that recently? They prepared. They prevented. We prayed to our God, and we set a guard as protection against them day and night. In Judah, it was said, the strength of those who bear the burdens is failing. There's too much rubble. 
by ourselves, we will not be able to rebuild the wall. And our enemies said, they will not know or see till we come upon them and kill them and stop the work. And at that time, the Jews who lived near the who lived near them came from all directions and said to us ten times, you must return to us. See, they had enemies within. Listen to this. So in the lowest parts of the space behind the wall, in open places, I stationed the people by their clans with their swords, their spears, and their bows. And I looked and I rose and I said to the nobles and the officials and the rest of the people, do not be afraid of them. Remember the Lord who is great and awesome and fight for your brothers, your sons, your daughters, your wives, and your homes. Can you, can you hear the spiritual application? See, all hell's breaking loose against Jerusalem. The enemies of Jerusalem, were, the enemies of the Jews were saying, we can't stand to see the, the height of the walls growing to half its height. We've got to attack now. And very wisely, as a leader, Nehemiah surveyed the scene and said, you know, here's what we need to do. There are still lower parts of the wall. In fact, there are still some open places where the gates have not yet been set, and that is the very place in which we need to fortify. That's the place we need reinforcements. And that's the place we need the reminder that our God is going to fight for us. But we need to be honest about the progress here. And that may be true for you. It's true for me. Are you honest about the places, the low places, the open spaces in your sanctification? The places where you're still vulnerable. The places where you're most likely to be attacked. Yeah, we can hear on the other side, too. Sometimes the, the, the orcs come over the high part of the wall, too. But where are we most likely to be vulnerable? So we have to know the Word of God. We know ourselves. But there's one final means of preparation, and it is Sound doctrine. Sound doctrine. It's not only memorizing scriptures and internalizing the scriptures, but being able to apply that in a sound and systematic way. Turn with me to, to the second chapter of Titus. To Titus chapter 2. Do you see how Paul works this out? In, in Titus chapter 1... He, he, he begins by writing this, Titus, the reason I left you in Crete was to set what remains in order, to put elders, point elders in every town, because the island of Crete is a disaster. I'm paraphrasing. They're liars, evil beasts, lazy gluttons. Even one of their own poets says this, and Paul says, it's true. And so there were false teachers who were teaching false doctrine, and it was producing rotten fruit. And Paul says in chapter 2, but as for you, Titus, teach what accords with or is fitting to sound doctrine or healthy doctrine. And then, as it were, Paul looks at all four corners of the congregation, older men, older women, younger men, younger women, and says this is what ought to comport with or go with sound doctrine. Then look at verse 11. Kind of follow Paul's argument. And Paul gets very specific with respect to older men and older women and younger men and younger women. These are the things that the doctrine ought to produce in them. Then look at verse 11. For the grace of God has appeared, bringing salvation for all people, training us, training us to renounce ungodliness 
and worldly passions and to live self-controlled, upright, and godly lives in the present age, waiting for our blessed hope, the appearing of the glory of our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ, who gave himself for us to redeem us from all lawlessness and to purify for himself a people for his own possession who are zealous for good works. And just to put an exclamation point on this, Paul says, declare these things, Titus, exhort and rebuke with all authority, let no one disregard you. What's he saying? We see the rotten fruit that comes from unsound doctrine. Teachers who don't understand the law versus the gospel. You see that in chapter 1. Then he says, but as for you, Titus, you teach healthy doctrine. And this is what healthy doctrine produces. This is what healthy doctrine enables the people of God to do, to renounce ungodliness. See, it is, it is not enough... It is not sufficient, saints, that you can quote a bunch of Scripture if you don't understand sound doctrine. If you can't put it all together and say, this is who my God is. So a study of theology proper. We understand the Trinity. We understand the Godhead. We understand Christ as as truly God and truly man. Do we have have a a well-grounded Biblical anthropology, meaning, do I understand the doctrine of man? Do I understand that man is fallen, that he is totally depraved? Not that he is every bit as depraved as he could be, but that there's no part of his body or soul that is not stained and tainted by sin. Do I understand that? You know, over the past three years, <laughs> we, we've heard much about the spread of infectious airborne viruses, haven't we? We've all learned far more about virology than we ever wanted to know. And we've heard all kinds of of utterly nonsensical and indeed unscientific ideas about how to prevent such things. Paper masks or cloth masks or, you know, nine people gathered but not 11 prevents the spread of a virus, or staying six feet apart but not five. Some just things that are on their face, silly. But others have suggested a a more time-tested approach. Strengthen your immune system. Fortify your body. Get some rest. Eat well. Maybe lose a few pounds. Get in shape. So that, not if you're exposed, because you're going to be at some point, but when you are exposed, is your body prepared to fight off the threat? Now, that used to be plain old common sense that your grandmother knew or your great-grandmother knew. But can't we apply this spiritually too? Paul tells Timothy to train yourself. He says bodily training is of some value, but nothing beats Nothing beats spiritual training. And as so you see, if, if we will, as, to obey the command that Paul gives to Titus, and, and by extension the church in Crete, is to cultivate sound doctrine and believe that it is by this sound doctrine that we are enabled to renounce ungodliness, to flee from lawlessness, to pursue godliness. How much more is that true with our spiritual strength? It's like airborne viruses. Temptation is everywhere. You don't have to go looking for it. It's it's going to find you. But how strong, can I say it like this? How strong is your spiritual immune system? 
What are you doing to fortify that? What are you doing to improve the health of your spiritual immune system? So that again, not, not if, but when you are exposed to temptation. Are you diligently studying the fundamental doctrines of the Christian faith? Having a Bible reading plan is wonderful. Reading consecutively through the scriptures is is wonderful. It's a good habit. In addition to that, are you studying the doctrines that have been faithfully handed down to us throughout church history? Do do you you have an understanding, at least a rudimentary understanding, of the doctrine of God? the doctrine of the Father and the Son and the Spirit, three and one and one and three, of, of, as I said earlier, biblical anthropology. Do you understand the difference between the law and the gospel? Do you think the law is the Old Testament and the gospel is the new? Or do you understand that law and gospel both exist in both covenants? Do you understand the sovereignty of God? The sovereignty of his God, in not only in, in, in eternally decreeing all things that come to pass, but by his providence, exercising Ordinary things, all people, circumstances, creatures, to the fulfillment of his perfect will. Do you understand the doctrine of the ordinary means of grace? How is it that, that God intends for his people to grow in righteousness? And we could go on and on and on, but are you cultivating a commitment to sound doctrine? That, that's a way of preventing and a way of preparing for the inevitability of temptation. So, what next, though? So you, you've, you've tried to prevent the temptation, and the virus still got you. you, you you've tried to prepare in the sense of, I, I, I sought to strengthen myself ahead of time so that I'm able to withstand that. And yet, temptation has still come. And, and, and whether it's a sudden provocation, unsolicited, unexpected, or whether it was because you carelessly wandered into it, Either way, what is incumbent upon you when temptation comes? And the answer from the scriptures, the other P, perseverance. Or we can say it this way, patience. Back to the passage I I cited in part earlier in 1 Corinthians 10. Therefore, let anyone who thinks he stands take heed lest he fall. No temptation has overtaken you except that which is common to man. But with the temptation, and and God is faithful, he will not allow you to be tempted beyond your ability, but with the temptation, you will also provide the way of escape that you may be able to endure it or that you may be able to persevere in it. See, the first thing we have to remember is the true source of our escape here. See, what are we tempted to think when temptation comes, we're tempted immediately, just reflexively, to rely upon our own wits, our own strength, our own devices. But what's the promise from the scriptures? God will not allow you to be tempted beyond what you are able, and God will provide the way of escape. Again, that doesn't mean you have no duties. That would undermine the whole sermon, wouldn't it? We can't forget the source of our deliverance, can we? It is God who provides the way of escape. In 2 Peter chapter 2, and, and, and Peter's working through this, and, he, and he's talking about Abraham, he's talking about Lot, and he says, and if he rescued righteous Lot, this is 2 Peter 2 verse 7, 
greatly distressed by the sensual conduct of the wicked, for as that righteous man lived among them day after day, he was tormenting his righteous soul over their lawless deeds that he saw and heard, then the Lord knows how to rescue the godly from trials. Saints, when you are buffeted, when you are facing temptations of various kinds, and, and like righteous, let's, let's assume the best, like righteous lot, your soul is tormented as you see these things around you. Do you believe that God is able to deliver you? Do you believe that God is able to give you the grace to persevere in that? To rescue you? So first of all, remember the source of escape. It, it is not our own wits. It is not our own ability. It is not our, our own ingenuity by which we escape. It, it is the Lord's power. It is His Spirit's work within us. But secondly, how do we endure? How do we, how do we persevere in the midst of, of temptation? Now we think back two sermons ago. If you weren't here, it's on Sermon Audio. We, we think about what Christ accomplished on our behalf as the one who was tempted and successfully repelled all the powers of hell in your stead. He did it because you didn't. He did it because you couldn't. He did it because you wouldn't. And I wouldn't. We look to the example of Christ. We look to the one who endured it perfectly, sinlessly, spotlessly. Our temptation. And so that by faith, not only if we believe in the Lord Jesus Christ, are all your sins pardoned, the certificate of debt that's, is canceled, nailed to the cross, but it is also the fact that all of the perfection of Christ is imputed to you. That all of his merit becomes your merit. That all of his righteousness becomes your righteousness by faith. Then we also look not only to the example of Christ, but Paul said, imitate me as I imitate Christ. We look to the example of other faithful believers. You can start with the scriptures. We have flawed men given to us in the scriptures. We also see in their, even with their flaws, these are faithful men. You could turn just as one example to, to Hebrews chapter 11, the hall of fame of faith, and just work your way through and meditate upon. What kind of temptations did Moses face? And how can I be encouraged to endure based on God's faithfulness to Moses? Or Abraham? Or David? Or as the writer of Hebrews says, or we can talk about Gideon and Barak, and the time doesn't even permit us to go into all of these. But they endured all kinds of temptations. So saints, are you fearful? Are you anxious? Are you struggling with lust? Or anger? Or selfishness? covetousness, or greed. Turn to the scriptures and see the examples of faithful men, and more than that, of the examples of a faithful God who granted the grace of perseverance to those men and women. Look to those examples. Thirdly, remember and, and rehearse the promise that the temptations that we face, and we may endure, you may endure particular kinds of temptations for the rest of your life. You may find in your own flesh that you are predisposed to certain temptations and you always will be tempted in that way. 
And you wrestle. Your soul anguishes over that. You grieve those kinds of, 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 of temptations that you face regularly because of the lust of your eyes or the fearfulness of your heart or, or, or the covetous nature. You run, I may struggle with this till I'm under the ground. And yet God promises us that these temptations we suffer now are not even worth comparing to the glory that will be revealed to us at the coming of the Lord Jesus Christ. That's really the thrust of Paul's argument in Romans 8, isn't it? Go and read Romans 8 and meditate upon it in light of, of, he talks about trials and sufferings, but sometimes those sufferings are temptations that come. They're spiritual sufferings. Go and meditate upon Romans 8 and think about those promises in light of that reality. And Paul says the sufferings of this age are not even worth comparing to the glories that will be revealed in the age to come. So will you rehearse those promises with yourself? Rehearse those promises with your, with your husband, with your wife, with your children, with your neighbors, with your brothers and sisters. As, as you know of, of a brother or sister who's been enduring certain temptations, will you rehearse those promises? Maybe it's a temptation that doesn't look like it's going to let up anytime soon. And there's no way to prevent it. You've prepared for it, but it's here. We remind one another of our duty of exercising perseverance, of exercising patience, but doing so in faith. And lastly, with respect to, to cultivating a patience and perseverance, is we have to cultivate a greater love. According to our flesh, we're, we're going to desire the things of this world. That, that's the fallen part in us that remains, isn't it? We find ourselves still wanting the things of this world. That's why our Lord Jesus says we are to be in this world, but not of it. He recognized our human nature. He remembers our frame. He knows that we are but dust. And he knows that, that, the, that our dust, can I make up a word, our dustliness? Makes us like the dirt of this world, doesn't it? We have to create a, uh, cultivate a greater love. We, we become more and more like the one that we worship. We become more and more like that which we adore. And if we adore the things of this world, if we, avoid, if we adore the dirt of this age, that's what we will worship. And that's what we will become more and more like when we cultivate a greater love. We, we intentionally stir up our affections. That means, are we guarding our friendships? doesn't mean we can't have friendships with unbelievers, but are we prioritizing our brothers and sisters? Are we making time in our schedules, in our families, in our homes to cultivate these things in our own souls and in the souls of our wives and children? Men, this is on us. This is a burden given specifically to us as heads in our homes. Be intentional about cultivating these things in our own souls and in in those in our care? Are we attending again to the means of grace? You see how these are interconnected? I had had to divide it up for the sake of organization, but they're all interconnected, aren't they? Sometimes the line between preparation and prevention is not a hard line, is it? Or the line between preparation and perseverance, that's not not a hard line, is it? 
But we have to prevent, we have to prepare, we have to persevere. These are our Christian duties. And again, I'm, I'm leaving it to you to work some of these things out in particular in your own circumstance, in your own heart. This, I hope you will view this as a, as, a, as a starting place and go and meditate further upon these things. But when you're faced with temptation, and I've said this now in, in the, this is the third sermon, I'm going to say the same thing. When we're faced with temptation, if our focus is not upon Christ's victory, then what's going to happen? What's going to happen is we're going to be faced with fear, with shame, with doubt, with anxieties of all kinds, discouragements, or we will falsely and hypocritically cover that up. That's the natural course of things, isn't it? And so we, we have to focus our, our eyes upon Christ and his victory, which is ours, shared with him if we are found in him. So for those who are in Christ, his temptation, and even more, his successful repelling of temptation, is for you. He did it on your behalf and to your credit. Jesus alone could endure every manner of temptation without the sinful nature or the sinful outcome that plagues you and me. We, we need such a mediator. We need a sinless one. And that should remind us not to place our hope with respect to temptation. We don't place our hope in our ability. Either our present ability or some hoped for or wished for or imagined future ability. We don't place our hope there. Well, I'm really weak today, but one day I'm going to be stronger and I'm going to place my hope there, being stronger. Well, bless your heart. That's not going to work well for you. Ask me how I know. And we've seen enough together. The Bible is very clear. We, we, we do, in fact, have unmistakable duties when it comes to temptation. But our hope doesn't rest in our fulfilling of those duties. Remember I said at the outset, I was a little nervous. I don't want you to hear law only. There are duties. I want you to obey the law. But not for as a means of righteousness not as a means of, of pleasing God or satisfying God, but as an expression of the inward work that God has done in you through the Lord Jesus Christ. Do you hear the difference? Say it another way. The Bible gives, gives to us law regarding temptation. We, we need to prevent. We need to prepare for it. We need to learn how to persevere through temptation. But the law never, never, never will justify you. It will never save you. It will not deliver you from temptation. It's only the grace and the mercy and the power of and the wisdom found in the Lord Jesus Christ that is our sure hope. Amen? But if you're not in Christ, if you're not in Christ, then the first thing you have to do is obey the word of God to believe the gospel of Jesus Christ, to believe that God has indeed sent him to take on our human flesh, to live the sinless, perfect, spotless life, to endure temptation, to endure hardship sinlessly, perfectly, flawlessly, every single time so that he could become the faithful high priest that you need to give himself as a, as a ransom for you. You have to believe that. You have to believe that God has, has accepted that perfect sacrifice, that Jesus was indeed crucified, dead, buried, and that God raised him up as a sure sign that his wrath had been satisfied.
Will you believe that? Will you confess that you, you need such a Savior? That, that your own resources, your own internal abilities, or even your own collective abilities with friends around you is insufficient. Is insufficient to make you right with God. But Christ has promised that any who will call on him, he will pardon their sin freely, unequivocally. Cleanse and pardon and they will be, made, will be made righteous and be counted as sons and daughters. Amen. Let's, let's pray. Oh Lord our God, we thank you that you are the faithful one. We confess that our, our sins are many. We have, we have not done as your word commands us to do with respect to temptation. We have we have not sought to prevent it. No, we have not prepared ourselves for it. We have not persevered well in the face of temptation. And we, we pray that you will help us more and more as your sons and daughters to place our faith in the one who has gone before us, the perfect one, the spotless one, the risen one, even our Lord Jesus Christ. It's in his name that we ask these things.